Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, go to Squarespace.com and use the offer code TWIP5. And now get free domain registration with annual plan subscriptions. This episode of This Week in Photo is brought to you by FreshBooks, the easy online invoicing app for small businesses that saves time and gets you paid faster. Join over 3.5 million FreshBooks users and try the service for free. Get 30 days of unlimited use at FreshBooks.com. And be sure to let them know that you heard about it on TWIP. This week on TWIP, a new movie made with 50 Canon 1D Mark III's, Leica announces an $8,000 black and white only rangefinder camera, and a discussion on deliberate photography. It's Wednesday, May 16th, 2012, and this is TWIP. And welcome back to TWIP. I am your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Today on the show, I'm joined by some very special people. Mr. Ron Brinkman, Mr. Dan Ablin, Miss Valerie Jardin. Hello, guys. How are you guys doing? Hello. Hello. Good. How are you, Frederick? I'm doing, I'm doing great. This is, this is going to be a really good show. I'm excited. Um, we got a good mix of people here, and we've got a new addition to the team, Valerie. So... I want to say hello to you. You and I did an interview a couple of weeks ago that hasn't aired yet, um, but people will see it very soon. It's a video interview. They'll see it very soon. And we were t- what were we talking about? Oh, mostly the writing I've been doing for DPS besides my photography work. Mm-hmm. And um, DPS is oh, di- Digital Photography Digital School. Photography School. Yep, yes. Yep. That's uh, Darren, Darren Rouse's that. outfit out there, which is an awesome yes. place. It's in, definitely in my RSS feed. Um, so I'm still writing for DPS. Actually, I wrote six articles in April, already wow. on my third one in May. Wow. And um, otherwise, I shoot mostly interiors and food for a living. And, um, and some workshops and sh- coming up in workshop in, in France, Paris. right? In Paris, yeah. yes, in October. That's filling up. Wow. And um, having fun. I'm I'm with I'm behind the camera all the time. I uh, shoot for a living and I shoot for fun. So that's really cool. Well, Best welcome, welcome world. to the this week in photo Thank team. You. We're glad to have you here, um, Mr. Dan Ablin over there. You haven't been on in a bit. So what have you been up to over in the Windy City? Oh, just uh, a lot of high school seniors actually at our studio, and uh, that mixed with a good bit of 3D animation and training videos and all that good stuff. Very cool. Very cool. You're doing some work. You're doing some Lynda.com titles and, and yeah. training, right? Yep. That's cool. Yeah, what, and actually, can you talk? Uh, can you talk about that, or is it secret? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, those are 3D related. Um, you know, and I throw a little photography in there if I can. I'm still trying to work in getting some photography uh, training in there. Um, but we're going to be doing some more of our own on our 3DGarage.com site for the new CS6 suite. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just had a nice talk with the Smugbug people today about uh, being a a um, I guess a, a lecturer for them. Oh, good. Uh, so uh, they may fly else. you out to my neck of the yeah. woods to speak. Yeah, they actually meetup. talk good. about San Jose. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, so good. good, good, good. I love that because I'm tired of paying for plane tickets. It's like 
No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's good. Well, welcome, welcome back to the show. And nice then, last but not least, is Mr. Ron Brinkman. Hey, Ron, how you doing? Doing well, doing very well. So I know you. you I know you. We, we talked before that you have a. You know, you were working on this project that you're finally able to talk about, and you're going to talk about it in your pick of the week. But give us a sneak peek of what it is. Well, it's an iPhone app, and it's kind of an interesting, different sort of take on photography. Uh, hopefully, compelling. Certainly different. And uh, I actually, I think it's a lot of fun. People seem to enjoy it. So. I'll, uh, I'll give you the full the full details when it comes time to do pick of the week. I love it. It's the cliffhanger. Cool. So uh, so basically, Ron Brinkman has built the Camera Plus and uh, Camera Awesome Killer, right? Is that what you're saying? No, it's a Photoshop killer. <laughs> oh, it's a Photoshop killer. Nice and Smug Mug and Flickr all in one, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. All right. Well, cool. We'll look forward to hearing the details about that. All right, guys, before we jump into this week's news and discussion, I want to give a nod to our sponsor. This week's show is brought to you by FreshBooks.com. Now, and basically, you know, I was, it's funny that they're, they're sponsoring the show this week uh, because I was just having a conversation about them earlier today with a client of mine that we were, we were discussing just sort of payment and how things go. And I was telling them that, it, you know, normally in the olden days, how payment went with clients are, you know, at the end of the month, you figure out who owes you what, you send them invoices and you beg for money and hopefully the money comes in, yada, 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 all that stuff. The stuff that typically creative people like us hate to do. Um, but I'm, and I'm not just saying this because FreshBooks is a sponsor of TWIP. I am, they have honestly made me more money than I probably would have made well, they definitely made me more money than I would have made without them because they essentially are like a secretary. So they do, or an assistant, they will, you set up reoccurring payments for certain clients. Like I have like certain clients are on retainers. So I can say, you know, every month on this day, bill this much, you know, and automatically bill them the bill that they get. They can pay like through PayPal or their credit card or whatever, right in the message. And I don't even know the message went out. I just get a message back saying, hey, so-and-so has deposited money in your account, <laughs> you know, and it's just it just makes everything so much easier. You just sit down one day, you put everything in there, you put all your clients in there. You can disperse invoices directly from there. Say you had a one-off client. You could write an invoice and boom, send it directly to them. When they pay, it logs everything. Then at the end of the year, you know, when, or when it's tax time, everything is nice and neat and perfect in there. It is a, it is a really good system. So basically, if you're, if you're in business for yourself, you know, the, the one thing that you want to make sure that, you, that happens on a regular basis is you getting paid. And what FreshBooks does is they make sure that happens. So and they've been around since 2004 doing this. So they know what they're doing. And I can vouch that at least for the last 18 months to two years, they definitely know what they're doing because I haven't seen a mistake so far. And it's, uh, it's really been really cool. So the rundown of what they do is you can create invoices and email them really easily to your clients. Your clients can view the invoices online and then pay you right on the spot, like I said, with a credit card. You can turn timesheets instantly into invoices and then run reports and all that stuff. And all this stuff is in a nice, neat, bacon-wrapped, accountant-friendly package <laughs> that, that you hand to your accountant that they will then consume and then kiss you on the cheek. So it's really cool. So you can you can check out FreshBooks for free. Try it for free. Sign up now and you get 30 days of unlimited use, all the features, client, staff, everything, no limits. 
just sign up for the service and just make sure when you when you sign up for them tell them i think there's a spot when you sign up to you know how you heard about how you heard about fresh books tell them you heard about it on twip so that they know that you know they're advertising and 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 the effort they're putting in and reaching our listeners is working so right now just quickly they've got over 3.5 million people that are sending and paying invoices over on freshbooks.com so when you join them you definitely won't be alone so check them out freshbooks com. All right. Uh, the first piece of news that I want to talk about is uh, really interesting here. So it's about there's a new movie coming out called The Pirates, not Pirates of the Caribbean, but The Pirates. And the interesting thing about it was it was made from one million with an M stills taken with 50 Canon cameras, the 1D Mark threes. So now I want to I want to toss this over to Ron first. So Ron, you know a little bit about this because you're you know you actually wrote the book on digital compositing and all this <laughs> stuff. So you know you know about this stuff. I want to throw it to you first, and then we'll bounce it around. Dan, I wanted to get your your input on this mm-hmm. as well. So what do sure. you what do you think about this, Ron? Is this oh no, no it's, it's very cool. Um, well, it's funny because it's you know it, it's a very modern take on on the way of the past, right? Artman animation. Um, I guess their most recent movie was Curse of the Were-Rabbit, but they're known for the Wallace and Gromit uh, shorts and everything. Just incredible creative stuff. But it's all using traditional stop-motion photography, uh, you know, which is that frame-by-frame where an animator gets in and moves a character's arm a fraction of an inch. Uh, And historically, that was done all on film. They'd have film cameras, and they'd advance at a frame at a time and do that. And, of course, in the digital age, they, they do this all digitally. They shoot digital frames. And I visited them probably, oh, I think it was during Curse of the Were-Rabbits, which is probably, I don't know, four years ago, four or five years ago. And they'd already kind of gone to digital at that point. Um, but it's more than just setting up the camera and taking pictures. They have a lot of additional equipment around it so that it's really easy for them to, you know, frame by frame, step back a couple of frames, step forward, make sure the positioning's right so they get this really flowing kind of motion that the characters need to have. And uh, it's obviously a, a massive sort of data undertaking because, you know, every one of these little characters has got to be moved just a tiny bit, and each yeah. frame then has to be logged and taken, kept track of. And if you kind of screw it up, you kind of – I mean, it's much easier than the old days where you, you sort of had to get, the, get it right, and if you screw it up, you had to go back and start over. Mm-hmm. At least in this case, you can kind of just see that a certain frame didn't work and, and a lot of times at least go back and reposition it. But yeah. it's really fun stuff. I mean, when I walked around, that it's their their sound stages are you know everything's little miniature stuff like foot tall characters. That's so cool. So their their sound stage is it's a very big building, but then everything is just a bunch of little tiny rooms that are that are all just kind of curtained off from each other with black curtain, uh, just black duvetine, and these animators just sit there for eight hours a day or however long it is, making little microscopic movements and and triggering the shutter. That's, That's really sad. no. They're actually a foot tall. Those yeah, characters? I mean, it, it, yeah, it depends on, on what they're doing, but See, yeah. I thought they were tiny. <laughs> uh, not not that tiny. A foot's probably a bit bigger than than what they are, but okay. um, I would, they're at least six inches, and maybe a little bit more than that. Okay. I think, if I remember right. So, Ron, so wow. so what what this the the question that pops up in my mind is, you know, after reading this article, it looks like is is this. The and uh, you know I may be ignorant, but is this the way that cinematography, like big budget cinematography and feature film cinematography, is going? Like going the way of these tiny, really inexpensive, expensive, uh, comparatively cameras? Yeah, I mean, th- obviously everybody is very on top of what the state of the art and technology is, and so even though this is a 
you know, sort of the oldest form of animation or one of the oldest forms of animation. Uh, they're using a lot of very high-tech stuff to do it. You know, most animated stuff these days is fully synthetic, fully CG. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's just a certain kind of really wonderful organic feel to these movies that are still using traditional stop-motion stuff. And so I think that, you know, the, the cost... The cost has generally not really been the equipment in a scenario like this. It's been just the tremendous amount of man hours that go into doing it. Because, you know, you think about it. I mean, 24 frames a second, and you've got uh, every, you know, all these things have to work together. Yeah. But, um, yeah, they're, they're very up to speed on, on the kind of the state of the art with this. But the interesting thing is that these guys, more than anybody else that's shooting something these days, are very future-proofed in the sense that they're shooting, you know, 4K stills kind of yeah. things. They're immediately ready to broadcast at 4K or even greater than that. You know, the cameras they were using the you know, the 1D Mark III is this even you know even higher resolution. So they're they're yeah, really they ready were, to they go. They said for, they were only using a portion of the frame of the 5D Mark III. That's that's crazy. Yeah, and and a lot of times you you may do that just purely for data wrangling purposes. They may not need the whole kind of deal, and mm-hmm. there's probably some post processing that's done right away at it. But they're certainly you know ready to go <laughs> as these projection technologies get better and better. Now, Dan, Dan, you're you're the 3D guy in the crowd here, right? So you, yeah. this is you, like we were saying in the beginning. There, you actually train people on how to do 3D and all that stuff. Where do you fall on this? Because I know one of the things in that article that we're, that we're referring to was the fact that Canon came out and said that some of the scenes in the Avengers, you know, the this record-breaking movie that I want to go see again, was was shot using off the rack. Canon cameras, you know. So, I mean, are we seeing? So, how does that? How does that work? Are we seeing everything moving in that direction on that side? And then, how does that relate to 3D work? You know, I think it's hard to say. You know, obviously, you've got movies coming out left and right that are all 3D generated entirely, um, and then you've got movies that are film with 3D put in. But then you've got situations like this where it's taking some of that digital technology, and I think. Ron can back me up on this if I'm wrong or right, but this this was first started with the Matrix. They're using digital stills to create some of those those. Uh, oh, when they did the bullet time scene, bullet they time did the bullet time. Yeah. yeah, there was a, a, a ring of cameras, and each was set to fire, just you know, fractions of second, one after the other, and that's how they got that that look. Um, you know, and stop motion is just classic. I mean, I was doing this on like a, some little camera back when I was 14. I had a little car on the side of my. Uh, nightstand and i was just you know taking a frame and taking a frame and i give these guys credit because i do not have that kind of patience to do that kind of work that is one reason i like 3d animation because you can set it, it's certainly a lot of work too but you can set you know your first keyframe your last keyframe and it's let the, the lazy man interpolate. stop motion right in, mm-hmm. in a way yeah. yeah yeah i mean there's just as much work elsewhere but it's not that that tedious work yeah. um it's hard to say you know if if this is the future i think now with you know the red cameras, um, the way the resolution on you know, on these cameras, uh, this I think it's the infancy. You know, it's it's really hard to predict where it's going to go. Mm. I just wonder if they shot raw or JPEG on those. <laughs> oh, <God. Yeah>. <laughs> well, <laughs> Valerie, where do you, where do you fall on this? So you know, there's oh, the, the basis well, of the I, question is 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 this the direction that everything is going? Where you know these big cinematographer rigs are going away and being boiled down to DSLRs? I think there is room for both. I mean, they're, they're using the DSLRs because they don't take much space, and if they have to get into a, some tight spots or yeah. whatever, yeah. you know, that makes more sense. But um, now to go back to the claymation thing, I just love claymation. <laughs> and it, 
uh, my kid just did a project for school and he used my old 50D to uh, mm-hmm. to shoot the frames. And it's so much work. I mean, yeah. you know, not only just to, you know, adjust the little clay people <laughs> and mm-hmm. make them move yep. and everything. But um, I totally admire people who, who do that. Wallace and Gromit is awesome and just uh, love those cartoons. But the use of, um, I don't do video at all, so, you know. So but it doesn't really it doesn't affect your world. So like zero video, no, no nothing. No, right? and I shoot with a 5D Mark II, and um, I've never used the video function. I mean, I will probably yeah. never for work. Yeah. I don't see my my business going that way, mm-hmm. but I I want to experiment with it just for fun. And yeah. you never know. You know, a client may want me to do a video someday, and I better know what I'm doing. But yeah. um, that's not how I see. I I mean. I, I see myself shooting still mm-hmm. forever, but uh, maybe I'm wrong. And uh, but I, I'd like to experiment with it. Yeah, so I mean, fun. from from what you told me during the interview that we did, I mean, you know, where would you fit video into your workflow? I mean, you're, you know, unless well, like you're doing arte- architectural or or that kind of photography, and yeah. someone says, "Hey, I want a sweeping video of this," and either you do it or I'm going to pay that crew ten grand to do it. Then you might say, "Well, you know." Yeah. <laughs> Uh, could get some help. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I probably would hire somebody to okay. to do it with me. I would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, it's uh, that whole space. You know, the video space. We we we've talked about it, and we will continue to talk about it because it keeps evolving. Like even the stop motion stuff that we're talking about now is. I mean, there's some really sophisticated iPhone and iPad and Android apps out there that let you do stop motion animation right there, right? And but should... for me, that's the cool thing is that you know, coming from the the visual effects world where we were in in the computer animated world, yeah. you know, there was all this talk about stop motion was just going to die because it wasn't cost effective. But it's interesting to see that a lot of these tools have sort of grown up to the point where they make it more cost-effective to do the very old techniques, the fact that you can easily edit all these frames that you're shooting and visualize what you're doing. And so a lot of the costs of, like I said, if you'd screwed something up in the old days, you kind of had to start over at the beginning of the scene. Now you can kind of go back in and fix it. Yeah. Uh, and so it's – and even even a lot of this claymation stuff, they still sort of enhance it with some CG bits and things that would have been really hard to do before. You can add CG where it's needed, but they still retain the organic sense of it. Yeah. And it gives people, you know, the kid in the basement, the ability to, to do this in in a way that's not so frustrating that they'll give up on it. Yep. Well, Valerie, you mentioned that you have a, you know, a, would you say a 5D Mark II? Yes. So I have the perfect the perfect replacement for that camera. It's the Leica. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> Good segue. It's like Monochrome camera. <laughs> So, so basically, the the news that we're going to talk about is Leica announced uh, a few days ago their M monochrome camera, and it's it's only going to shoot in black and white, and they're only going to charge eight thousand dollars for love the it. Camera. Uh, but but you get Lightroom with it, right? <laughs> you get, That's right. <laughs> well, see, it's all worth it. Only the black and white filters, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so I mean, you know. I'm sure people know by now where I fall on this, uh, but Valerie, you're th- you're the new kid on the block here. Is this a camera? I mean, it's obvious. I know what you're going to say, but is this a camera that you would ever con- consider buying? Well, I mean, even if you I, had all the I money in the world, was... so you had, you know, you got twenty five, you got a billion dollars sitting in your slush fund. Would you run out and buy this camera? Yes, I would. <laughs> and every other camera available to man. No. 
this is actually kind of cool, but I, what I want to know is if when you look through the viewfinder, is it actually black and white? Oh, I don't know. Why not? Good question. I don't know. It should. I mean, I it would think, make sense. Yeah, it would make sense, or at least having. But it's an interesting question because to do it right, you would almost want to be able to also kind of bake in some of the black and white looks that you might want to be getting out of it so you but could better would... visualize it. Yeah, we're we're going to talk about the previous stuff in a second, but uh, just I don't know, Dan. Like in in your commercial world, you know, where you're you're doing, mm-hmm. you know, the the seniors and the weddings and you know the stuff. No, that, no weddings. No, okay, no weddings. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that before from different people. Uh, but when you're doing, you know, the kind of the work that you do is is a camera like this that's, you know, that's locked down into one particular kind of photography. Would you ever consider that or? Well, like who is this camera for? Like I, somebody has a million dollar trust fund, yeah. right? <laughs> no, you know I have a little Leica that I carry around in my uh, laptop bag, one of the deluxe versions, those little ones, mm-hmm. which is great, you know. But um, coming from the film days where you shot in black and white, you shot black and white film, you know, would I want to go back to that? I I don't know. I mean, if you've got eight thousand lying around, you got nothing better to do. I would. But, you know, does it handle black and white? Does it handle that? Does a chip handle the conversion better than me doing it in Photoshop? That's what I want to know. I mean, why, you why know, would yeah. you limit uh, yourself? And right? that's, let's talk about that, though, because I think that is exactly to the point here. And, you know, whether it makes sense to spend $8,000 because it's got the Leica name on it as well as this, that I do question. But there, it does make sense that somebody would come out with a camera that was a less expensive version of this that would only shoot black and white. But because the thing is, you know, when you're shooting in color, you've got it's called the the Bayer sensor array, mm-hmm. right? So you're really shooting at a third of the resolution uh, or a fourth of the resolution, depending on which pixels you double up, uh, of what the sensor is capable of doing. You got a red and a green and a blue, usually two greens or something like that. Uh, and so all of those in between pixels for each color channel for the reds and the, and the blues are interpolated from their neighbors. So in effect, this resolution that you're working on, if you're shooting you know, a, a 20 megapixel image, it's not really 20 megapixels. A lot of that's kind of made up data based on interpolating, figure out what the neighbors are doing. And there's some smart al- algorithms for doing it. But if you take all that out and you just say every single one of these little pixels is purely going to capture brightness information, black and white information, then you immediately do get much more resolution there. And the other thing you're doing because each one of these sensors typically has got a filter in front of it to filter out, so you're only getting the red light or the blue light, you take that away and you conceivably have a much more sensitive camera, the ability to shoot into, into the blacks a lot more. Yeah. So those things That's together kind of, you know, kind of can, can make, it have, you know, make it sensible to say that producing a true black and white camera, a true black and white sensor, does have some economic benefits for, for doing it. And, you know, what I would like to see is somebody like like one of the Micro Four Thirds uh, cameras that do have a nice selection of good lenses that would rival what you could put on your Leica, coming out with a lower-cost Micro Four Thirds black and white camera, you know, in the $1,000 or the $800 range. I think mm-hmm. it's doable. And, can see, you know, at that point, then it becomes an interesting proposition. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't buy it. No. <laughs> I think, I, I think it's a good argument. <laughs> Go ahead, Valerie. I think it's I think it's a street photographer's dream. I mean, I I do street photography a lot. I like to yeah. I like to shoot with something smaller, and and I convert in black and white ninety nine percent of my street photography. So 
this would be pretty cool. And and I hear that the um, yeah the the it has very um, yeah because of it doesn't have the filter for color or whatever. I mm -hmm. don't really understand how that works, but yeah. it has really good low light um, resolution and. Um, at really high ISO with super low noise. Mm -hmm. And I saw some sample images. It's pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. And actually, somebody even mentioned that instead of pixels, it almost looks like film grain. Pretty cool. Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. I, I, you know, if, okay. if, you, if you are a photographer that only shoots black and white, and there are plenty of photographers that do that, uh -huh. they will only convert to black and white. Mm -hmm. yeah. At some point, the proposition is, you're going to do it anyway. Why not start with the... You know, so the that, that makes that sense. So maybe that's right. why it's so expensive because the market is so vertical and narrow. And, and I think that's exactly it. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. huh. yeah. Okay. Now, so. but you know, it would be interesting to see if somebody. I mean, theoretically, you take any sensor; it's easier to make it a black and white sensor than a color one. You don't have to overlay the little filters. You don't have to do all the extra processing power in there. So conceivably, you could take you could make the exact same camera as, you know, pick any any sensor out there. It's mm -hmm. less expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, and at that point, you know. I mean, like my I 10D, I have an old Canon 10D that mm -hmm. I converted to infrared, you know, right. and it's exactly. that's all it shoots is infrared. That's its job now. It's a, it's single purpose. And it's great as an infrared camera, but it's a 10D, you know. It does it, it's not a great. <laughs> well, yeah. perhaps down the road you're going to see a camera that has multiple sensors. Yeah, see, now you that know, would because be look, interesting. Yeah. You know, look at the D800. You know, they've got the two versions now, one with the anti-aliasing, one without. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and now you've got this black and white thing that is brand new to the market. So who knows? A little dial in there. Yeah. Different sensor comes up, different shooting modes. Well, like a, if you're listening, please send Valerie um, – <laughs> One of these cameras, maybe two. I'll take it to, to Paris and I'll shoot black and white. Yes, because Paris, Paris. Paris wants to be black and white, right? So, That's right. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, we'll okay. you know, I don't know. I, I think I'll the jury's it. still out on it. Li Twip listeners, if you have any comments on this, please comment um, on the blog post for this. That'll go up Friday. I would love to know what you think about this or on Google Plus or wherever. Just let us know what you think about this $8,000 uh, black and white only camera. Would you buy it or... Would you convert one of your old cameras to black and white or what? Um, okay, this next story, guys, I am honestly going to skip it because um, it is. <laughs> it, okay, I'm gonna t now that I brought it up, I'm going to tell you, people you, you talk about it. Kodak apparently had a nuclear reactor in its basement, but it's, it's not as glamorous as that headline sounds. <laughs> It wasn't. I mean, the the bigger story was the fact that they had enriched uranium in the basement in Rochester that no one in the area knew that they had, and they were using it for testing and you know doing really precision radiography and that sort of thing. But it what there was nothing nefarious. It was under lock and key and all that. And it, this was like three or four years ago that they had it. Anyway, so anyway. Just wanted to bring that up. If you're interested in learning about that, just Google Kodak nuclear reactor, and you'll. <laughs> you know, if if they find the right client, that's probably their most valuable asset at this point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, we know who those clients are, right? <laughs> so that would be the wrong, you know, I got, the wrong client simultaneously. Yeah, I got to tell you about a, a. It reminds me of when I was in college. We had a part of our class was um, non-silver photography, and we would take this kind of art linen paper. And we would brush this special chemical on it and we'd make a cotolith and we'd actually expose this chemical uh, with a black light. Mm. And then we would do an opposite cotolith and then expose it again with a different chemical. And you got this cool kind of 
rust sort of painted look, but it was a black light exposure. And we never knew what this chemical was. <laughs> after about th- I'm, I'm not kidding. And after about three weeks, some guys with like lab coats came in and took the chemicals and shut it all down. <laughs> <laughs> so I have no idea what that is. And I got weird dry spots on my hands now well, wait, 20 did, years later. You, so I don't know if that's uh, from that. Do you have any children? <laughs> I have one. She, she she walks like this. <laughs> she's she's amazingly intelligent. I don't yeah, know why. So I, th- I think there's a lot of a lot of that Kodak stuff going. It was Kodak products, by the way. So wow, that's oh. crazy. It's it's interesting. It's a good footnote, um, but you know, it is uh, definitely not a huge story. All right, guys. Um, real quick, what we're going to insert here is uh, I had a, a conversation with uh, Alan Melzer. He's a friend of this week in photo. And he also happens to be a lawyer, and so every now and then I solicit him for for cheap legal advice, you know, which he gives me. <laughs> Not that it's cheap in its its value, but it's you know I don't pay him for it. But he uh, he wanted to demystify. I asked him to de- ask. I, I asked him to demystify the legalities behind model releases, as we referred to in TWIP episode two fifty one. So Nicole came on. And talked a lot about what when and when not to use, or when you should and when you shouldn't use model releases. And in the comments on Twip two fifty one on the blog post, there was like a, a long discussion, and some confusion, frankly, came up from different people saying, "Well, I don't know if that's true." So I decided to go to a lawyer and ask him, and Alan demystified it in this comment. So give it a listen. Hi, Fred, and hello to the Twip audience. Fred, you asked me to listen to the discussion that Nicole and Ron had in episode 251 as it relates to model releases and also to take a look at the blog posts. I've done that and found them to be very interesting and very informative. And I would encourage the listeners, if they're interested in model releases, to go back and listen to what Nicole and Ron had to say as it was very accurate. What I would like to add is some aspects of the law that relate to model releases and to put the model releases in context of when and when you don't need them. Now, I would call the listeners' attention to the American Society of Media Professionals website. That's at ASMP.org, and they have an extensive discussion Uh, regarding model releases and the information is very informative and very useful. Now today I'm only going to be discussing model releases and not other areas of the law that might come into play even if you have a model release. And there are certain areas such as rights of privacy, rights of publicity, private property rights, defamation, and digital manipulation and the consequences of that, as well as using a photo to illustrate sensitive issues. Now, the reason for a model release is to protect the right of privacy of the individual that's being photographed. And the model release is is needed whenever you use a photograph of a recognizable image of a person and it is used to advertise or represent a product, a business, a service. In other words, for commercial uses and for commercial exploitation. And in that context, the, the person who's photographed has agreed to be photographed and, a be, and agreed to be published for commercial uses. 
In other words, it's going to protect the photographer and the publisher later on once they publish the photo. Now, there are certain situations where you don't need a model release. Generally, if a person is in the public and you photograph them and they have, an, and they have no expectation of privacy, then uh, you don't need a model release unless you are going to exploit the photograph for commercial purposes. And that is the important distinction here for commercial purposes. And the reason I say this is, as, is that because under the Constitution, the First Amendment to the Constitution, there's a protection of free speech. So there are aspects of publishing photos where you would not need a model release. And the two most prevalent are the an expressive use, which is recognized as free speech under the Constitution, and an editorial use. Under the expressive use, for example, if you're going to create art prints or you're going to have a photo in a book, as long as it's not on the cover where it's going to be used to sell the book, uh, you probably don't need a model release. And the, in the editorial context, if the photo is going to be used for uh, news, for its newsworthiness, in that context, then you don't need a model release. Now, even if you don't have a model release, you can still sell a photo. For example, if you're going to use a photo for editorial purposes, you certainly can sell it to the newspaper. Now, you're going to get commercial gain, but it's not going to give rise to the need for a model release. And to summarize, it's really not the taking of the picture that requires the model release. That is a whole other area of discussion, when and when you can't take a photo. The model release is there when you're going to publish the photo and how you're going to use it. And that will determine the need for the model release. It is normally the publisher's responsibility for the model release. However, for practical reasons, a photographer will get the model release uh, when they're taking the photo of the subject and that, tip, that typically arises in the context of stock photography, where most agencies will definitely require that if you're going to have a person in the, in the photo, you need a model release. I want to finish with this guideline that when you're in doubt, get a model release or at the minimum, get the publisher to indemnify you. And the indemnification is only worth how stable the publisher is. Uh, thank you for this opportunity, Fred, and I'll be talking to you soon. Bye-bye. Okay, that was Alan Melzer. So if you want to check out that blog post that he's referring to in that clip, just head over to thisweekinphoto.com and uh, find TWIP episode 251 and look at the comments and you'll see what the whole hubbub is about. All right, uh, lady and gents, we are going to talk about, so the, for the feature discussion for this episode, it's all about being, or deliberate photography is what I call it, or just sort of like pre-visualizing what you're going to shoot before you go out and shoot things. So, and I want to touch base with each one of you guys, because each one of you has a different way of, of approaching photography and a different goal in mind for what you're doing. So Valerie, I want to start with you. I just want to start with like process. 
you know, when you when you go out on a shoot, what is going like the night before when you go to bed and you know you're going to go do a shoot at 9 a.m. the next morning? What's going through your mind? Are you pre-vising or are you just saying, you know, what, I'm going to throw some stuff in the bag. And if I get a good shot, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I never even thought that way. I, uh, I, I like to scout the location whenever possible. Mm-hmm. But when I can't, I always ask the client, like if I'm doing um, an interior shoot, I always and usually it's not a whole house, so I'm shooting a newly remodeled, you know, family room or kitchen or, or a commercial space. I always ask before we schedule the shoot, which is it, is it facing east, west, whatever, because nice. I need to make sure the sun is not going to be right, you know, coming into the window. So yep. um, so I, I, I make sure when I get there, I, you know, it's the right time of the day to shoot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, yeah, I just talk with the client a lot if I can't see the location ahead of time about, you know, what their needs are and, and what kind of, because they're in interior photography, for example, there are a lot of uh, vignette shots, you know, the detail shots that mm-hmm. are really important and besides having the, the big picture. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I pretty much have a good idea of what I'm going to do before I get there. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the client will send some some of their own pictures, yeah. you know, of the space, so I know what I'm, you know, what to bring. Yeah. Um, I mean, I bring more than I need all the mm-hmm. time and extra, extra camera bodies just in case something goes wrong. But um, yeah, that's yeah, that's cool. Okay, so then, I, okay, go ahead, go ahead, Val. No, I just when <laughs> when you when you mentioned the ty- the the theme, I was thinking more of what I do for you know on my personal projects rather than what I do for for work you yeah. know and being deliberate and pre visualizing um, for for a shoot when I'm doing street photography or when I'm working on a personal project. I I thought more in that direction than for what I do for commercial work for some reason. But go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> that's fine. Very cool. Very I'm cool. flexible. <laughs> No, that's perfect. That's perfect. So I'm going to switch over to to Dan over there. So Dan, you know, you you have a very different, you know, sort of. I mean, you're shooting in a studio, so you have a you have the most controlled environment available to a photographer. Exactly. You, you know, you know exactly what you have. You know exactly what f-stop works. You know everything. Yeah. Do, do, does previs or pre-conceptualization of what the shot is going to be, does that factor into your shooting? or is Yeah, it, it, it absolutely does. Um, you know, obviously one reason we like studio is for exactly that reason. But a lot lately we've been really pushing a pre-session consultation, uh, getting, you know, whether it's a parent or whether the, it's a high school senior um, or the mom with the baby, getting them in ahead of time so we know exactly what we're shooting for, what backgrounds they like, so they know what to wear. But in addition kind of the underlying thing of it, because, I mean, it's obviously quick to switch a background. The bigger picture is what we're shooting for, whether it's just a simple wall portrait, whether it's a bunch of gift prints, or, you know, whether we're doing, you know, big canvases. Mm -hmm. Uh, If they've got a vertical spot in their home or a wide spot, and that helps me kind of know, okay, this is what we're looking for. Or they're doing a collection. All right, we need the group shot, then we need little Johnny and Susie, but we need them together, but then, you know, the the mom is a stepmom, so we can't put her with the kids, and You know, it's all those kind of things so we know how we're shooting. But for all the times I am out in the street, because what we're doing a lot now is uh, we're doing a lot of compositing with the seniors. So I'll take, you know, because I started just walking around the city just shooting in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Um, So I still do that quite often, do photo tours and do workshops through the city. I'll I'll now take those shots, and we actually have one that we just did of a high school senior. We shot him here with his hockey stick, 
in all his hockey gear on, on a gray backdrop, composited that over some shots of, um, I was up above the L trains where, um, the elevated train in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And I just heard like 900 people go, Oh, that's what L means. But yeah, (laughs) (laughs) not the elevated Chicagoans. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, I know, and we're doing we're doing a new one soon, um, where it's going to be in the theater district. So we're going to go down and take some shots. And I know that I'm shooting somebody with a red dress, and we're going to hang a chandelier from underneath the L tracks. So that previs does help, especially when we're doing those compositing shots, because th- if that angle and perspective aren't right, it just it, it doesn't work. So it. yeah, it always helps. And then you know, probably a good twenty percent of the time, you just kind of wing it. Yeah, you know, I call it like you remember for those of, for those of us that remember the dark room. You remember the concept of the ring around, right? So you'd you'd make a print and then you'd make a bunch of prints around that one at different exposures so that you can say, oh, yeah, that filter exposure combination com- or combination works great. I'm going to use that, and that becomes the hero. And then you make a ring around from that one, and then keep going until you get the right shot. So the same thing with the with shooting. You start with something in mind. And then do variants on that particular theme, and then maybe take a tangent from one of those variants and branch out on that. And more often than not, that's the winning shot. Mm-hmm. But you at least had somewhere to start. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's a good way to work. Yeah, the the hard thing is going out there and staring at a blank page, right? Like, uh, I hate that. You know, <laughs> I have a model, and I'm in San Francisco. Uh, what should we do? <laughs> yeah. yeah, not a good scene. So, what what was the genesis of this conversation? Was the BBC? So, the BBC website uh, each week they they ask thought leaders for an idea that they think might change the world, no matter how far fetched it might seem. And this week, or this past week, the uh, photojournalist by the name of Nick Danziger um, said that he wants to limit the number of digital devices or the n- number of photographs that digital devices can take to just one per day. So that's why I, I want to talk about that a little bit. So one per day, which means, I mean, if you think about it, you know, for the spray and pay, spray and pray shooters out there, that's, you know, that's heresy. But for the people that are like, that have Ansel Adams type mentality that, you know, okay, I'm going to wait till I get everything right. And then, you know, get the eight by 10 film and expose it for three years and then cover back. You know, <laughs> you know for those people, they might understand. Valerie, do you think you could, do you think you could survive taking one shot a day? Or a you know, week? I actually thought of it. Well, I, I really believe in the power of limitations, whether it's limitation in, in the gear you carry or, you know, limitation in, you know, like I'm only going to take 10 frames today. I mean, Jim Brennenberg, you know, did that after he left the National Geographic in the in the late 90s. He, he set out to take one exposure a day for 90 days and that was published all 90 images were published in the national geographic i mean the the entire body of work was so amazing and that was one exposure per day for 90 days okay because i was going to ask you that that was just one shot a day that wasn't one selection a day now and he he could be out there all day looking for that one shot and it could be sunset and he still didn't have that one shot i mean most of the images are stunning there is an exhibit actually right now in minneapolis of of the 90 images um and some are are not so great but when you look at the entire body of work 90 days it was fall into winter yeah it's just uh yeah well actually it was all fall 90 days it's amazing and it was his bestseller book and it was not even meant to be uh, published ever. I think he kept it in drawers for like two years, and then the National Geographic um, 
found the, the Im saw the images when someone was visiting his studio and, and decided to publish it. And that's the most images, actually, the National Geographic ever published in one story. Wow. It's amazing. Actually, I have a copy of, the, of that National Geographic. All 90 images are in there. So I really do think that limiting yourself is is going to make you slow down. It's just mm -hmm. like all of a sudden shooting film when you've been... I, I, I started my career with film, mm -hmm. and so I never had the machine gun approach. You know, when, when I'm out with photographers and they're like... I'm like, how do you even have time to look at all these images, you know? I rarely take more than three frames of one thing, and I kind of know when I get the right one. Yeah, and even I, I worked at a pr on a project for um, a still life project for an exhibit uh, in the Netherlands earlier this year where um, I, I did a still life um, setup. So it wasn't still life, you know, you see it, you shoot it. It was more staging it. Mm -hmm. And every composition I did, it was the first or second. I, sometime I shot, you know, 10 frames or 50 frames. It was always the first or second shot that was the one I kept, and that's the one that was in the exhibit. Right. So I think you, you kind of know, and you always have to go with your gut feeling of, is this going to be the right shot? And then you keep on shooting, and for some reason it, it doesn't work as well. So I really think if you limit yourself, you can do better work. Uh, it makes I, you slow I down. I agree. Ron, Ron is, uh, you know, put a spin on that since you're, you've got iPhone on the brain. Is that, should this be should just this, should this be an app? I mean, I, as Valerie was talking about that, I was thinking – what if there was an app out there that reset itself every 24 hours and you'd only let you take one shot, you know, right. and then posted that shot online somewhere for people to see? I like it. I think I'll do that. Yeah, do it. Do it. Um, I, you know, I, the point is very valid that it would force people to really step back and think a lot more about what they're shooting. And, I mean, I, I you know, the National Geographic that uh, Valerie is mentioning is like, I remember looking through that too, and just being really humbled by the the, the really high level of photos that came out of that. And, and and basically, I also looked at it and said, "There's just no way I could come close to doing something like that." Yeah. And you know, m maybe I'm underselling what we all are capable of. You mean come really... close in talent, or come close in just being able to restrict yourself? No, I mean in talent. I mean yeah. just looking at the, you know the quality of those photos and and being able to consistently turn out that level. Uh, on a daily basis, you know, because it's a combination of technical skill, but also inspiration. Uh, and, you know, I mean, that's a skill, too, obviously, of having the eye to see this is going to be the shot that is worth taking today. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, I do like the sentiment. I mean, obviously, it's, it's never going to happen, and people are going to continue to shoot more and more up to the point where people will just be shooting video constantly and just picking, you know, a, a frame they like out of the stream, you know, a 24-hour stream. Uh, I think that's a much more likely scenario is that, you know, all photos would just be pl plucked out of a consistent stream than you'll see yeah. well thought out individual photos. But. That's scary. That, that that makes me think of the whole Google goggles concept, you know, where, yeah. well, you know, you're exactly just, it. it's the constant stream and you can say, you know what, uh, I, was at, I was at Yosemite a few weeks ago. I want to get a shot from there. So you just mm -hmm. go pick one from your visual stream. Yep. <laughs> I think that's right. That but, is, you know, in, in some ways what that ends up doing is really distinguishing the true photographers from everybody else. We're sort of at the middle ground now, but you know, eventually it will, it will be where the, the real photographers are the ones that sit down and truly plan something out. Mm -hmm. You know, and I don't do nearly that much sort of uh, deliberate planning on you – know, most of my photography is when I'm traveling. And, you know, obviously 
you have a lot of constraints. But having said that, I, I know I should do a lot more sort of sitting down and visualizing. And for me, for me, that usually happens if I get to a location, and I may not have a lot of time right then, but I sort of say to myself, you know, I got to come back tomorrow morning when the light's good. Uh, and, and then your brain's working on it, and then you're kind of kind of chugging away a little bit and kind of planning out, all right, when I do come back, where do I want to be? You know, what time do I need to be here? Where, where should I be standing? That kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and for travel photography, I think that's about the best you can do a lot, of, a lot of times just because it's all new and you don't have the luxury of scouting a location all that often. Yeah, so like in, in that case, so this... That's, it's, that that really stretches your brain when you think about that kind of limitation. And I'm thinking, when should you do that? If photographers that are watching this are saying, you know, or listening, you know, I want to try that. I want to try that limitation thing. So, would I mean, is it? Can you do that? I mean, like we like taking pictures. Like even on a photo walk, you go out and, and kind of the mo is okay. I want to take a bunch of shots and I'm going to bring them into the Lightroom or Aperture or whatever and tweak them and then post them online and there's a gallery and all that stuff. I mean, is that even feasible, Dan? I mean, would you, I mean, you know, can you limit yourself? I think that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yes. That's awesome. Ron, you're supposed to be the curmudgeon. What's going on? <laughs> no, I mean, there's, there's two sides to it. From the artistic standpoint, people doing like the 365 projects and this guy limiting himself to the 90 days. You know, that's really cool. I mean, I had told you on, I think, one of the last uh, shows I was on, how when I'm teaching workshops, I'll go back old school and say, okay, we only had 36 shots, mm -hmm. and we had to take that many of this one thing. Yep. And I remember, you know, in a lot of those people, were they were they it was really difficult for them because then they started really thinking, hey, you know, I, I'm, I have to ration my pictures here because you can't just spray and pray. So on that level, I think it's a really good thing, a good way to learn photography and limit yourself. As a rule, if that's, you know, uh, or Dan's are saying, you know, make a world more captivating, interesting place, I don't, I don't think so necessarily. I mean, there's too many amazing things going on to see and too many, uh, so many different things with uh, different sites when you travel and people in the city, it's just too much. So there's a balance in there between, you know, one shot a day versus just, you know, I took 1,200 photos today out in just one hour, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know and then, so. you know, then you dump them all on Flickr, right? So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know, and I'll tell you this. There's uh, a fantastic uh, senior photographer, uh, Kirk Vauclain, down in uh, Louisiana. And on one of his videos, um, he, he lines it up. He sets up, shot, he sets up the lights, takes one shot. He goes, see that? I took one shot, not two. Did she blink? No. And he's, <laughs> and he, you know, and that's how he sounds. Kind of like what uh, Valerie's talking about. You know, a couple of shots. Okay, I got it. Move on. Yeah. Yeah. So. Hmm, hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'll try <laughs> it, but you know, it's this it seems like an awful waste of gear that I. <laughs> just, just, it goes against the whole digital. Uh, idea you know why are we buying eight gig cards and now we can have two cards in our cameras you know yeah. and you know what i might try shot. i might try because i still have some film cameras maybe that's it maybe i'll you know do a photo do do a photo essay where it's one photo a month on one roll of film you know that yep. way it's with well, the that, camera yeah and that was the cool thing about the national geographic guy as well as you know you, i think in the book you actually you know he he shows the film strip, so you actually can see the uncut negative that has yep. everything on there, and and that just sort of brings it home, and it's kind of a neat 
companion mm-hmm. to it if you were to scan the whole script. Like, it almost has to up. be done on film because on digital, it just feels like a waste and arbitrary limitation. On film, you know, you're limited, you know? It's, yeah. And you can't cheat either. You can't cheat. Right. Yeah, exactly. No. It's, it's, you, it's contiguous, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. I don't know. I'm going to challenge all three of you. I think we should. Uh, we should. Who's going to last the longest? Yeah. <laughs> One shot a day. One shot a day. Dan will be out of business in a month, right? <laughs> I'm not. I'm That's not sure. I have a film camera that could uh, actually shoot anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can go get one. Here's my Polaroid. So yeah. speaking speaking of film cameras or or disposable cameras, those. Um, I think it was was it last week or the week before last we were talking about the that IKEA disposable yes. camera, yes. which apparently a listener wrote on the blog that that was it was real, but it was it it was a promotion. It's not going to be mass produced. Right. So, yeah, I saw that too. I'm sad about that IKEA. It was kind of cool. What's up with that? We need that. We need that camera or somebody out there make a camera like that that we could play with and just throw away. All right. Um, on to the next segment really quickly here. So uh, this is an interview I did with photographer Charles McPherson. He's a nature and wildlife photographer who bounces all over the planet like Indiana Jones taking pictures in exotic places. Um, so I caught up with him and had a conversation about, you know, you guessed it, wildlife photography and the kind of gear that you take with you, the crazy stuff that's happened to him while out in the middle of nowhere trying to take pictures and all that stuff. So it's a really interesting interview. So give it a listen. I'm here with Mr. Charlie McPherson from The Amazing Image, also found at theamazingimage.com. Now, Charlie is an award-winning wildlife photographer. He's an instructor and just an all-around guy who loves photography and taking pictures of really cool things. And Charlie and I touched base um, a while ago, a couple weeks ago, and we came to the conclusion that it would be great to chat with him in this format to share some of his knowledge about wildlife photography and how to go about doing it and trials and tribulations and uh, sort of get that message out to the This Week in Photo Army. So, Charlie, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Frederick. It's my pleasure. It is is my pleasure. Okay, so let's let's jump right into this. First of all, this is your first time on the show, so let's let's introduce you to the audience. What uh who is Charlie McPherson and what brought you into the world of making images? Well, most of my family and friends don't recognize me unless there's a camera in front of my face. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's been like that since uh, about 1973, although I did take a bunch of years off as I went on to other pursuits like raising a family. Mm. But um I've been. Uh, I started off in photography with uh, my dad's uh, Argus Brick. Remember wow, the Argus, I'm not even Argus familiar Brick? with that. What is that? It's the Argus C3, and they called it a brick because it was shaped exactly like a brick. <laughs> wow! And you always waited for the moment that somebody would try to mug you and take it because you could hit them with it and kill them. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it, it was a, a self-defense de- device, right? <laughs> yeah, it was a no. It was a no-nonsense camera. Yeah. A beautiful little rangefinder that worked terrific. But um, you know, for all the years I was shooting, uh, I just spent a lot of time running around taking nature photos and seascapes and those sorts of things. But um, I always had a fascination with wildlife, and for all of my life, I operated on one really bad assumption. And my really bad assumption was that I would never be able to do it. Mm. And that's because I grew up in Boston. 
now, you know what the wildlife is like in Boston. Well, it's a different kind of wildlife, right? <laughs> well, it's pigeons yeah. <laughs> and squirrels. Exotic wildlife would be a robin or a chipmunk. Mm. And um, being a, you know, a city kid, wildlife just never really crossed my mind as something that was ever going to be part of my reality. So I went into adulthood thinking, boy, it sure would be nice, but this is just not going to ever be part of my life. And then I got my first digital camera. Um, Again, I'm a multilingual. I started off with a Nikon D70, uh, although I'm now a Canon shooter. Mm -hmm. So walking through the woods, I heard a little rustle in the tree next to me, turned, shot instinctively, and got very, very lucky. And nailed a shot of a little black-capped chickadee taking off from a bush. Sharp eyes, wingtip blur. Now, I would love to tell you I planned it. I did not. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it was, it it was, was a, serendipity, right? <laughs> as just dumb luck. But it opened my eyes and shattered my, uh, my bad preconceptions. And I, in that instant, realized that the little kid's assumption that stayed with me my whole life was all wrong. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, I started. I made the decision to start really pursuing wildlife. And so in the, in the ensuing years, I've spent more and more time and money um, chasing wildlife every place from southwest Florida in the winter to uh, – I'm now running a polar bear tour to the northeast corner of Alaska, a wow. little ti- tiny Eskimo village in the Arctic Ocean. Wow. And um, it all started with a black-capped chickadee. Now, now, so so you've clearly been bitten by the, the wildlife bug and wanted to shoot that. Any particular reason why you haven't expanded that out to, say, landscapes as well? Or do you just like there's something magical about capturing that moment with, with wildlife? I do landscapes. Um, I enjoy them. But I usually shoot them when I'm out looking for wildlife and can't find any. (laughs) (laughs) Landscapes are the backup. (laughs) They're the backup. You know, I do a little other work. I mean, I've shot some commercial work for, uh, I don't know, probably in the West Coast. I'm not sure if you have Dunkin' Donuts, but they're a big coffee chain. Oh, you do? Oh, great. You guys have really come along. This is great. I think the entire planet has Dunkin' Donuts by now. I think I saw one in Tokyo. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you go to Dunkin' Donuts and look at their portfolio of build-outs, uh, some of that work was done by my daughter and me. Wow, wow, yeah. that's great. Okay, yeah. so so uh, so we've got the got a little bit of the history. We know that you are Nikon and switched over to Canon. Um, so let's talk a little bit about gear. You know, specifically, what what does it take? So you're a Canon shooter. So what does it take in order to? If, taking it from the perspective of the, the photographer that's like, they're listening to this interview and they want to go out and do what you do. They're looking at your work and they're like, I could never do that. Maybe I should go get some better gear or different gear so that I can maybe aspire to do what Charlie does. So what do they need to do? How should they start? That's a great question. Um, the first thing that you're going to need is to overcome what you just said and what I believed all those years. You have to overcome the built-in notion that you can't do this because you can. And the single most important ingredient is absolute willingness to go out and put in the time and the effort and suffer for your craft and be willing to fail over and over and over. It is not over till you quit. Yeah. But when you quit, it's over. Right. So that's, that's by far the most important ingredient. 
Now, as far as gear, you know, I'm I'm a big proponent of telling my students and and others that the gear really does not make the photographer. Mm-hmm. That you can shoot a good image with jolly near anything. In fact, you should see the, the work my daughter does with her Holga. It's mind blowing. Love that. But yeah. uh, the Holger, for those who don't know, is what do they cost now? About twenty nine dollars. Yeah, I think yeah. twenty nine dollars with a twenty eight dollar <laughs> discount or something. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and of course, you never quite know what the camera's going to do with exactly. all the light leaks. And that's and the magic lenses. of it. Yeah, that's the magic. <laughs> that's the magic, right? I have no interest in it, but she's fantastic. Yeah. And she's, by the way, at rebeccamacphoto.com. Oh, yeah. So anyway, then a little plug for my daughter. Yeah. So. As far as um, wildlife, it's a lot like sports. These are two pursuits where the gear actually does kind of matter. And one of the things you'll need most is a, is a nice, long telephoto. I started off shooting with, um, I think it was like a 75 to 300, which I quickly replaced with. Uh, Sigma, by the way, has a really nice sweet spot in their, their lineup. The 150 to 500. Mm. telephoto the new versions have optical stabilization sigma calls it os um it's a little dark at 500 millimeters it's a 6.3 but with with camera bodies getting better and better with um you know better high iso performance yeah yeah. you can push them further and further that's a sweet lens it's just a a smidge over a thousand dollars and i know that sounds like a lot but it, it is I, a lot. <laughs> You're like, no, it sounds like a lot, but really, but it is. <laughs> well, but compared to my my other my other favorite lens, I shoot almost incessantly with the Canon 600 millimeter f4. Now that's the old version, which is the one I have that weighs 12 pounds. That's a 9200 dollar lens. I would tell you this: I think that the 600 f4 is definitely a better lens, but it's not nine times better. Hmm. Interesting. That sigma that sigma makes a nice piece of glass, and and for wildlife, that's kind of entry level budget. You can do some really good work with that. Have you ever but considered sure, Have you ever considered buying any used gear? I did once. Mm-hmm. I didn't like it. No. <laughs> <laughs> I bought a Canon twenty eight to three hundred, which is a great lens. Um, but despite the description online, it arrived quite a bit more dinged up than uh, they had described. Uh, I used used it for a while, sold it, but of course I disclosed all that when I sold it. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, so I shoot a lot with that, that 600. Uh, I use the 100, 400 on my second body. And the two bodies I'm shooting right now are the 5D Mark II and the 7D. Um, the 7D is a much, much, much better wildlife camera because it has much better autofocus than the 5D Mark II. Now, of course, the Mark III is out and it's going to blow everything else away right, right. but um, the other thing that's really important for wildlife is frame rate and the 7d at eight frames a second not bad and you need those frames because there's so much about the animal that you cannot control you can control your depth of field and your shutter speed and your position and maybe move yourself into a you know a place where the animals in better light who knows a lot you can control but you cannot control the animal's head position, uh, their their movement, uh, their behavior. So, you know, frequently, um, I'll give you an example. I was in Denali last year, and one of the lessons I always teach people is to be ready to shoot instantly, no hesitation. There was a lynx 
Lynx is a cute little cat. Well, he's he's cute if you're not getting getting eaten by him. <laughs> if he's not chasing you, right? <laughs> right. But he's he's about the size of uh, a really small dog. I, I refer to him as about ten pounds of bad news. Oh, wow. Well, this this Lynx pop Lynx popped out of the bush, and I had the six hundred in my hand and shot. I would much rather have put down the six hundred, grabbed the one hundred, four hundred, framed it up a little bit better. But this little lynx was in position for three seconds. Three seconds. Mm-hmm. So I took the shot. And now I kept shooting. As he, was, he just turned and walked away, and I kept shooting, kept pumping that shot. Trying to keep the buffer uh, from being full, where you get that terrifying message from the camera that says, busy. Which which translates to uh, I'm going to make you miss right. a bunch of shots, right? Oh yeah, and this is when the animal does something just fantastic. Yeah, you, as soon as you're buffering, the animal starts tap dancing and moonwalking <laughs> right, and all right, that stuff, right. and then you're ready to shoot again, and he's running. Right, <laughs> right, right, absolutely, absolutely. You 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 must have shot some wildlife. Yeah. I didn't know they did. Did they do that in the air force? Is that something new? It's or? a different kind of wildlife. <laughs> yeah, different I kind bet. of shooting too. I bet it is. Yeah. So. But, it, but that, that fast frame rate is going to help you when the animal then turns. So you can keep shooting, just kind of bump, 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 keep shooting. And as he turns, you've got a great chance of, of catching that sideways glance, the better body position. So that, that fast frame rate is something that really helps, particularly in birds. Yeah. In fact, I have an award-winning image of an ibis landing at dusk. It's just one of my favorite shots ever. Wow. And I always tell people this when I do lectures for camera clubs, that <laughs> this image is one of a series of 17, and 16 of those images are garbage. Isn't that crazy? The- I mean, that's the thing, because you – and I'm guilty of this just like everyone else, but you look at these wildlife shots – you know, there's, you know, the iconic shot of the, the bear catching the salmon in its mouth as it's, you know, swimming upstream and all this stuff. And you don't realize that how long it took to get that shot, perhaps, you know, how long the, the photographer may have burned through five or six CF cards trying to get that particular shot. You just see that <laughs> one shot. and You're like, oh, that's nice. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's about right. Yeah, that's a, in fact, uh, the, the amount of time and effort that goes into making wildlife shots can be anything from bang. I got a lucky shot of a black cap chickadee taking off, which is much more rare, by the way, to um, I have one shot of a couple of baby owls on the nest baby great horned owls. And I'll tell you, there's just nothing cuter than a pair of baby great horned owls. I was seven hours on that nest because for the first six hours and 45 minutes, those two owls were out of position. They were turned and deeper in the top of the broken tree where they, they had their nest and they were much more hidden behind a protruding piece of bark. Yeah. After seven hours or after six hours and 45 minutes, they moved. And oh, happy day! <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and 400 images later, I was I was very happy. So then, you know, when turning it back to just tips on how to how to do this stuff, what are some problems that you've encountered as you you know you like you said you've been you've traveled from you know South Florida all the way up through Northeast Alaska and all these different places that you find yourselves in you find yourself in. What are some of the things that like you could you can give us? It might be. Okay, when you're traveling, make sure you have this in your bag because, you know, most people don't think about it. But if you don't have it when you get there, you're, you're in trouble. What are some little tidbits you can share? Well, that's a great question, too. Um, I am not one of these pack light people. I 
bring everything. There's <laughs> <laughs> the oven, the microwave, uh, well, <laughs> the DVD player. <laughs> <laughs> You're not far off. I mean, you know, on the on the trip last year to um, to Kaktovik, which is the island we go to in the Arctic Ocean to shoot polar bears, I brought my extension tubes. Well, yeah. I, I didn't know if I'd come across some you know little Arctic flower that I'd probably never see. Well, I'll probably see it this year. But I, I didn't know what I'm going to encounter. And and to not have my extension tubes with me when I wanted that shot, I would be so angry. I'm, you know, 3,500 miles from home and, for, you know, well, probably a good two weeks away from extension tubes. And, um, yeah, so I, I, don't, I don't play that game. I bring it all. So be, beat the old Boy Scout motto, right? Be prepared. Be prepared. Um, carabiners can be your friend. <laughs> Yeah. You can car- carabiner all sorts of stuff onto your goofy photographer's vest. And the day will come where something you carabinered on is going to bail you out. You're going to nail the shot and you'll never think that vest is goofy again. So that's the first thing. I, I bring everything. Okay. But the biggest problem you run into is no wildlife. And that is something that really is as frustrating as can be. I mean I, I watched the um, the local birding boards and look for you know sightings of a particular bird. I, I really have a fascination for raptors, and I just love owls. I, I don't know how, any, how anybody could not love owls. Owls, are, they're beautiful. They're purpose-built. If you're a rodent, they're the most vicious thing on the planet. <laughs> yeah. They're gorgeous, and yeah. they, they have these big eyes and this look that says, I know more stuff than you do. And we both know it. <laughs> so yeah. the whole wise old owl thing, right? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Nothing not to like about them. Yeah. But I have a really tough time finding them. So that because goes back they're to... smarter than you, right? <laughs> <laughs> they're the wise old owls, so they know how to avoid that's you. Like, that's exactly right. And and their bark color. Yeah. So if you're bark color and you're sitting in a tree, I mean, you know, camouflage is what they do for a living, so they're pretty good at it. Yeah. So so one of the things is use local knowledge. Local knowledge can be anything from your local Audubon clubs, so your, your Audubon sanctuaries, yep. to birding clubs, to, for instance, here in, in New England, we have a thing called Mass Bird, and it's an Audubon site where people um, report spottings of different birds. And that, that kind of knowledge alone will tell you who's where. In fact, we, um, this year we have what they call an eruption of snowy owls. Uh, the snowy owls come south because there's not enough food way up north. They're, they're favorite food is lemmings and that population is cyclical crashing about every three years three to four years well crashed this past year here they come you just about can't swing a dead cat without hitting a snowy owl and if you look at things like mass bird it'll tell you where they are who's seen them how many are there where are they on the um, the particular site so local knowledge is huge so that's the first thing that's well maybe that's the second thing as far as challenges, you know, of course, the photographer's perpetual challenge is not enough light. Yeah. We almost never have too much light. And I, I hope the day will come <laughs> when we're all shooting at ISO, you know, 3.2 million. And, um, you know, we can, we can shoot by starlight, but uh, that's not here yet. Right. So. Right. So or you can just hang out. You can hang out and wait for the sun to go supernova. With that, <laughs> right. that might bring other problems. <laughs> sure. Oh, oh, what's the worst that could possibly happen? Exactly. <laughs> so, so, <a> <laughs> so you're gonna you know you're gonna look for positions um, on the wildlife where 
hopefully you've got enough light, but you know, oftentimes you're deep in the woods. So now, you know, now the next problem you're going to run into is how does your camera perform with uh, high ISO? And I always recommend – in fact, I did a blog post about this um, a few weeks back, maybe a couple months back. My suggestion is that you know your camera's ISO performance as it relates to noise before you have to. And so you do that by finding a nice high contrast scene, shoot it at every single ISO setting, look at the images, then go into post and start pulling up the shadows, and then look at the images again. At that point, use whatever noise reduction software you have and make a decision. You'll then be in a position to say, you know what, unless it's a really unusual situation with this camera, I want to keep my ISO below some number that you've determined by actually seeing it. Yeah. So those those are a couple of things to think about. Okay. So uh, let, let's let's talk. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about sharing. So you know we we could talk about capturing the images and and packing your gear bag and travel and all that stuff for for a long time. But then what it really comes down to is once you have that image of that owl that you think is the most amazing thing in the world, then what? So what does that mean on your side? So you're you're not you're atypical, right? So you're not going to be like the average photographer, but for the average photographer out there, you know, say I got that shot, what do I do next? If I got how do I share it? Do I print it? Do I hang it on my wall? Do I sell it? What do I do? Oh boy, could you actually hear the chill that just went up my spine? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was static in the line. I don't know. <laughs> no, because no, I think you're going to say something like uh, TwitPic and Facebook and, you know, oh, oh boy. Well, so, I, did, I didn't, though. I avoided that specifically. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm, I, I'm still um, just dipping my toes in this. Now, on my website, I, I, do, um, I do a new article on photography every week, and I'll post images there. And that's fine. But things like Twitter and Facebook, um, I actually hired somebody. I actually have my first employee. God bless her. She's wonderful. Her job is to do all this stuff and put some of these images out there at a very low resolution because it just – I have not yet gotten to the point where I'm willing to put stuff out there that's stealable. That would yeah. make me crazy. Uh, not that I have that far to go, but it would make me crazy. You mean just the so, fear of driving somewhere in Florida and seeing one of your owl pictures oh, on a billboard? Man, yeah. I, I've got this. I've got this gorgeous shot of a mother polar bear with a first-year cub, little baby bear. He's got his head resting on mom's back, and his eyes are closed. It's just this wonderful shot. It's this perfect Kodak moment. And may Kodak rest in peace. Um, hey, they're not gone yet. Come on. <laughs> oh, man. Talk about heartbreaking. Yeah. But I'll tell you, the day that, that I get someplace and see that image on somebody's billboard or advertisement for Alaska Air, or I'm, I'm just going to blow my brains out. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I, I'm not over that yet. But now, now are you registering my... everything as you, as you know, once you, are you bulk uploading low res images to the, to the, to the, to the copyright office? You know, as soon as I start eating a higher fiber diet and taking my vitamins and doing push-ups, what else am I supposed to do? Let's see. Um, yeah, then I'll, then I'll you know, I know I need to do it. Haven't done it yet. That sounds Shame like that me. might be another bullet item for the for your first employee to register yeah. all your images. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it's one of those I know I should do it. Eat my green beans. Yeah. But uh, 
Yeah. Well, then it becomes another revenue stream because the scenario changes. Right now, if you drive down the highway in Florida and you see your owl image on a billboard, you're just going to go cry. But if you had registered it, then you'd be tap dancing and stopping by the next bar because it's a big payday. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I know. It's it's, it's actually on my list of stuff to do, and I just haven't done it yet. Yeah. Yeah. it's a very busy thing growing a little business like this oh, yeah, while I yeah. actually own another, another retail store that's unrelated to photography. So I'm, I'm literally working seven days a week and have been for the last three years. And that's my excuse. And it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we know as soon as we hang up this call, you're going to go register all your images. Right? Promise. <laughs> <laughs> At some point between now and infinity, you're going <laughs> to right. Well, so you'll never have to say this in a public forum again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I'm going to ask you next time I, next time we talk. Um, oh, no. So let's talk about post-processing. So you, you mentioned you know, using noise reduction software and, and post-processing and all that stuff. What are you using? Are you an Aperture guy, Bridge guy, um, Lightroom? Uh, I started off as a, as a Photoshop CS3 guy in digital mm-hmm. and um, found I was using mostly Bridge. Now, the, the reason that I don't do heavy post in my wildlife image uh, imagery is that I really want to get out and tell the story, which I do to a lot of camera clubs and libraries and wildlife clubs. I want to tell them that they can get out and do this too. These beautiful animals are there and they're accessible. All it takes is first of all, your decision to do it and the time and the persistence, and you will create great images. So for me to go and do these slideshows and these presentations and show images I created later in post is really um, kind of defeats the purpose. Now, when I do landscapes and architecture and portraiture, well, sure, (laughs) we'll we'll do post to a fairly well. So, But um, to answer the question, I I left uh, Photoshop – I got really irritated at Adobe's practice of um, refusing to make uh, older versions of Photoshop compatible with newer cameras. Mm-hmm. Their ver- their re- reply is basically, you know, expletive deleted, uh, upgrade. Right. And, you're, you're, and you're talking specifically about the raw processing engine and how Absolutely. you have to have the latest and greatest in order to, to have the latest uh, processing yeah. engine. That is correct. And I, I just found that so repulsive. I at one point made the decision, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going away. I bought my first Apple, and I went and bought Aperture, and I've been there ever since. Okay, so, Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I've heard that before. Um, in fact, I think this week on this last, this last show that we recorded, um, yeah, we're in March right now. It's March 30th, 2012. And the, uh, the last show we recorded, someone on the show mentioned that that was the primary reason why they were upgrading was because of the raw processing engine. Um, and for the compatibility, it might've been Doug K. I think it was and mm. for, for the compatibility. So basically what you're, what you're raging against the machine for is why he, why he needed to update, you know? And I think I even threw right. out there, would you, would you be upgrading to CS6 if Adobe made the camera raw engine available separately? Like even as a $30, $40, $100, even, you know, separate purchase if you just wanted the processing engine to plug into previous versions of Photoshop. And uh, I think his answer was, I'm not, I don't recall, but I, I think he would just get that processing engine. <laughs> so, yeah, I understand yeah, that. It's, it's just a lousy way to do business. But, you know, if you want to play in the sandbox, those are the rules, and uh, you have to go along with it. My, yeah. my decision was to spend about $3,000 on, uh, on some Mac gear and some, some software. 
and turn my back and feel better about the whole enterprise. Right. Right. Well, in, in the end, no one's asking you, unless you're a photographer like me on a podcast, <laughs> what you use for post-processing. Right. 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 <laughs> well, my, my daughter uses Photoshop yeah. and Lightroom. And in fact, she, she's an icon shooter. I'm a Canon shooter. She's she's Lightroom Photoshop. I'm Aperture Photoshop. So <laughs> it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It, right. It's a mixed household. So yep. good. Good. All right. Let's let's in this uh, in this. And we we exchanged emails before this. And I I commented on your your self promotional powers. So oh dear, you are you are you have <laughs> you're a self promoter, and I love that. That's good. And a lot of a lot of photographers don't have that ability. It's more of you know, they have a, for better or for worse, a lot of photographers, they need to promote themselves may have the mindset of, well, my work will speak for itself, you know, or if I build it, they will come, you know, that kind <laughs> of, you know, the, the field, well, the field of dreams, you know, which never gets built. So like, talk to me a little bit about that. You know, you're, cause you're, you're doing a lot of stuff and you're, but you managed to get the word out about the stuff that you're doing in a, in a unobtrusive way. So just give me, give me your mindset and how you do that stuff. Well, my mindset is I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> That's great. If, if you want to know how, how to do self-promotion, um, look at a guy like Rick Salmon. Mm-hmm. Rick Rick really knows his stuff. I mean, yeah. he's he's out there. He's known by everybody, universally loved. I mean, the guy's great. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm doing a blog. I mean, I, I wrote this, this blog. Um, I do a new article every weekend. And by the end of the first year... I had about 10 unique visitors a day and I kept looking and kind of looking up to see if I could find that cold water pipe so I could throw a rope over it and hang myself. All this work and no one's listening. But I kept at it and kept at it and kept at it. And now, you know, I'm I'm a little over 100 unique visitors a day and that's um, getting there. Yeah. Um, I write an occasional article for the online edition of the Boston Globe. They have a – at boston.com, they have a section called Raw. You have to dig pretty deep to find it these days, but uh, it's down there, and I've got a few articles in there. Um, I've worked on developing relations with sponsors. I now have four. Um, how do you do that? How do you, you know, how do you, how do you get a sponsor? Mm. A lot of photographers are like, I want to be sponsored, but I don't right. do I just call them up and say, can I have some money, or what do you do? Okay, well, so that's the, that's the <laughs> first thing about approaching people. Um, I now have One Stop Photo. They're a, a pro lab. Mm-hmm. Uh, the number one stop, FOTO.com. Hunts Photo, which everybody knows, HuntsPhotoAndVideo.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're a great dealer. Um, I have uh, the Mac Group. I'm sure you've heard of the Mac Group. Sure. Yeah, so, you know, we've got a, got a lot of good sponsors. And um, the way I approach them is to, first of all, state I'm not looking for money and I'm not looking for free stuff. Oh, I also, what am I saying? Lens Pro to Go, my other, my other sponsor, Lens Pro to Go, a great rental company. LensProtogo.com. So, you know, I approached them and said, I'm looking for a relationship. This has to work for both of us. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's how you position and, it? I'm looking. So this was like dating. Because you, you, I can imagine you saying that in a club <laughs> or something, right? <laughs> well, okay. Hey, let me buy you a drink. I'm looking for a relationship, and this has to work for both of us. You know? <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm married almost 33 years now. Very happy. Did you use that line on her when you... <laughs> I did not. <laughs> Mostly because I hadn't thought of it. But yeah, yeah, it's a good line. <laughs> hey, baby, what's your sign? This has to work for both of us. That's By cool. the way, could you sign this NDA before we proceed? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> I need a waiver of liability. 
liability. Exactly. That's, that's, that's terrific, right? <laughs> so, uh, so uh, you know, I think companies are used to having people approach them with their hands out. You know, yeah. yeah. I'll say nice things about you if you give me, give me, give me, give me. Yeah. And I don't want, I don't want that. Um, so I, I approached all four companies and said, "Look, I'm not looking for money. I'm not looking for free stuff." So for all these sponsors, these four people, Hunts, Lens Pro to Go, One Stop Photo, and the Mac Group, I have not received a dime, nor do I want to receive a dime. I'm not asking for it. What I need from them is their help in, in getting a lot more eyeballs on what I do. Oh, that's good. You know, I became completely convinced that there is a rock-solid business in taking people to the Arctic, and that's what I'm working on the most heavily of all. But what I need is lots and lots and lots more eyeballs on what I do. I mean, we're, we're working on a tour right now, hopefully, hoping to pull off the test run this year, to Baffin Island. Do you know where Baffin Island is? I, I, I don't think I've ever, ever heard those syllables put together. I don't know where that is. Ever hear of the Northwest Passage? Yes. For which so many died. Right? Yes. Yep. Baffin Island sits in the Northwest, Northwest Passage. Wow. It's this very long island. That it's um, just south of Ellesmere Island. Ellesmere Island is the last thing you can get to before the North Pole, at least in this hemisphere. So we're going to Baffin Island. There's, this, there's a bird sanctuary there. There's wildlife all over the place. But I need uh, millions upon millions of eyeballs. And with the podcast, I guess we'll have earballs. But I need a lot more people to see what we do. And so that's, that was my desire in approaching these four companies. So, again, not looking for money, not looking for free stuff. And what I'm looking for is a relationship that works for both. Yeah, that's, and, that's, a, great, that's a great point. And I'll, I'll just piggyback on that. You know, when I was working – when I was working at Adobe, you know, managing professional photography, marketing, and Lightroom, and all that sort of stuff, the I would get approached by photographers multiple times a day asking for sponsorship. You know, and the the one thing that was a was a was common for most of them was they wanted Adobe to sponsor them either with money or with software for a workshop or something like that, but they didn't have much to give in return. So, you know, and some would even say, you know, I've been my, I've been using your software for years and I'm running this workshop and I'm going to expose you to a hundred people, you know, and I would like free software to give to them. You know, (laughs) you're asking Adobe to give you free software to, you know, for things. So it's unrealistic. So my, the ones that, that were successful with me, you know, and this is like a nugget for people that are looking for sponsorship, were the ones that approached with a clear value add to the company. So if you come in and say, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about your company, I'm going to, I'm going to blog about it, I'm going to do this, I'm going you know, to expose you to this many people, which is a lot of people that you would not have access to before, I'm going to do A, B, and C, all this stuff, and all I want in return is this and to be able to use your logo. You know? And some right. of them would even say, hey, you know, my value add to you is me putting the Adobe logo on my website to, to put in front of my 500 visitors, you know? Right. Right. You know, not, not I don't know, but I'd say, but you know, the, the Adobe logo is kind of recognized already and it doesn't really need exposure. <laughs> right. So so if you I approach mean, these companies, do them a favor and just go in with absolutely. a value add and be realistic. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I think a lot of this comes down to, do you believe in your own work? Yeah. Does your work speak for itself? You know, if you come to Alaska with me, if you come to this little island in the Arctic Ocean, I am going to put you 
50 feet from the polar bears, and you will come home with images that will turn your friends green. I believe in that work. I am not looking to have LensPro to go and Hunts and all these guys fund my dream. I will work for my dream. My work will speak for itself. Yeah. Those tours will speak for themselves. I think if you really want to go out there and get sponsors, don't go out there with your hand out. Yep, that's, that's a really good point. Well, you know, I don't want to suck up any more of your time on this beautiful Friday. So let's, uh, you know, first of all, I want to, this has been a great interview. So I want to put you on the spot and ask you if you will come on This Week in Photo again as a, as a regular guest so we can pick your brain, you know, from time to time. I would like nothing better. All right. Well, that's my, we'll, we'll make sure that happens. And then finally, where, where can people go to find out, you know, what you're up to and where would you like to point the, the TWIP army to be exposed to more Charlie McPherson? <laughs> well, I think the, uh, the simplest place is the, uh, the website. Again, there's an art, a new article on photography every week. And uh, there's a photo contest, by the way. Um, we, I, I have actually taken a, a page out of the TWIP book. And I, I do the one-word assignment, no questions allowed. Good. Um, so <laughs> I went real simple for this coming month. The the one word assignment is landscape. I like I mean, it. Come on, uh, I, come that's on. easy. I mean, yeah, you you gotta be able to find the landscape. It's not that hard. Yeah. So and in fact, uh, this month the prize is uh, one stop photo is offering a free framed matted and framed. Excuse me, double matted and framed eleven by fourteen. So very nice. Very good. So so there at the website you'll find all that stuff. It's theamazingimage.com, and then uh, we are at on Twitter at. Um, at the amazing image, and Facebook is facebook.com/slash/theamazingimage. And if you can't find me there, any of those three places, you're just not trying. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> well, Charlie, thank, thanks again for for chatting with me. It's been a really interesting conversation. I really appreciate it. Oh, Frederick, it's been my pleasure, and I will look forward to talking to you and the Twip Army again. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Thanks a million. All right, you can learn more about Charles by visiting his website and, of course, his various social networking sites. And we'll link to everything about Charles in the notes for this episode. And lastly, we want to give a quick nod to our other sponsor, Squarespace.com. Um, Squarespace.com, as you guys know, is a fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. Squarespace.com is an in-the-cloud service, meaning... There's no software that you install on your site. There's nothing to download. There's nothing, you know, nothing to lose. You get a username and password. You log in, and you can build your, your website, your blog. You can, you know, basically manage the entire thing soup to nuts, Flickr integration, Twitter integration, all that stuff. It's optimized for people that know what they're doing in terms of web design. So if you understand what CSS is or cascading style sheets, if you know what that is, you can get in and tweak it as much as you want to make exactly the site you want. If you don't know what that means, you can still start with a template and customize the template to do whatever you want. And they've got hundreds of templates in there for every conceivable website that you might want. So, you know, tons of stuff in there. They've they've now integrated Google's 300-strong web font library into the offering. So now you're not even restricted there. But back in the olden days, you know, if you wanted a special font on your site, you had to design it in Photoshop and then make it a GIF or a JPEG and put it on your site that way. Now, you know, you can actually embed the live font on your site, which is much smaller and gives you much more sort of flexibility. 
Squarespace has free classes, live webinars, all that other magic stuff that you might want when you're just getting up and running with your website. So check them out. You can get a free trial. Just head over to squarespace.com, sign up for a free account. You don't need a credit card to try it out. Just start building a website. And if you like what you see when you're building it, use our offer code, which is TWIP5, and you'll get 10% off your first, your first purchase for new accounts. And also, if you register with it for an annual plan with them, they'll they'll take care of or they'll waive the fee for your domain registration as well. So it's really cool. Just check them out. They're at squarespace.com slash twip or you know, squarespace.com and use the offer code twip5. All right, folks, this is my favorite time on the show. This is the listener Q&A segment where our guests, you guys, get to answer questions that have come in you know, through Google Plus, Twitter, our our website, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. And the first question, um, I'm gonna throw this one. Valerie, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this one to you since you travel a lot and uh you know a bit about this kind of stuff. So listener Michael Pharisee was says he was saving for a new lens, but has decided to rent a lens instead and use the money that he'll save to go on a trip somewhere, which is one of the recommendations that Derek Story made on a previous show. Um, so he's going to use that that lens savings and go on a trip. He says um, he wants to know where he and his wife should go for about five to seven days to get some amazing photos. And he's got about $2,500 to spend, and he'll be leaving from Southern California. What do you think? Oh, well, he could come to Paris in October. I knew you were going to say that. Leave, he's going to have to leave his wife at home. <laughs> Twenty five hundred dollars. I gotta get there. That's it. So he's. he's we'll save money without her going. That's right. Wait a minute, Valerie. Did you say come to Paris and leave the wife at home? Well, with twenty five hundred dollars, <laughs> it's just not gonna make it. Well, yeah, it is not gonna pay for the divorce attorney either. So. <laughs> okay, uh, twenty five hundred dollars is in Southern California. So we don't know what he likes to shoot. If it's landscape, city, or anything. Right. Yeah. Okay. So he's probably going to drive, yeah, somewhere, right? Well, right. okay. If I, well, I think it's just—it's a great idea to rent the. I mean, he probably has some lenses he could use, but if he's renting instead of spending all that money <clears throat> on a new lens, spend it on a trip or a workshop or something. And yep. I mean, that's awesome. Um, well, if it was me, I would go to a big city. <laughs> But yeah. uh, see, we don't have much detail. But if he's and, going from Southern uh, California, couldn't he maybe take a cruise down to Mexico or something? You bet. Oh, I mean, there's tons of stuff. Yeah, yeah. you could do a lot. Yeah, That's Ron, Ron you're, the, you're the travel expensive. guy here too, right? You're always going somewhere. I'm surprised you've been on the show for you know this much. You haven't traveled anywhere. This many <laughs> consecutive days, it's true. Yeah, what's going on? Um, I, was, I was in Hong Kong like only about a month ago, so it oh, hasn't okay. been that, yeah. that bad. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, coming from L.A., there's a lot of good options. Uh, Central America, if you really want to get out and go somewhere, you know, Costa Rica is is amazing and extremely accessible. And usually you can get flights for, uh, I, I think the last time I flew down to Nicaragua, it was, you know, only about four or $500 for the flight. I think it was about 400 even. From Southern um, California, from L.A. Yeah, from L.A. So, um, you know, if you look around, there's a lot of stuff down there. And once you're down there, it's cheap. You know, Central America is very cheap to get around in, so... You know, getting out of the jungle, of, uh, jungles of Costa Rica or Nicaragua, or, or I have not been to Panama, but I hear it's also very, you know, a lot of good variety. Mm-hmm. So I'd probably suggest something like that. I mean, there, there's all the islands and stuff too, and for that matter, coming from from LA, it's really easy to get over to Hawaii. Although you can 
easily spend a lot of money there if you're not you're careful. You're going to spend $2,500 just getting out of the airport in Hawaii, yeah. I think. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's hard to find cheap flights to Hawaii. But, yeah, I, I would probably say that. Either that or, you know, you're on the West Coast, getting up to Alaska is also an option that I have not done, but some beautiful stuff up there. And you can do that combination kind of cruise, uh, you know, fly in and then do a cruise that takes you in a little uh, in and out of the shore kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. there's tons Probably of Probably not on this budget, on that $2,500. Yeah, I don't know. That might be pushing it for a But from Southern California, he could go, I mean, you know, if you really wanted to stretch it, you could go to rent a car and go to Vegas, right? That's what I was going to say. Palm yeah. Springs, yeah. which is right there. You could go to Death Valley and Joshua Tree. Which oh, are, that's awesome. Yeah, that's all right right next yeah. door to him, you know? Yeah. And you could do uh, that and, for and, you know, I mean, yeah, and Yosemite is, is a five-hour drive, and there is no place in the world that's more beautiful than that, really. I mean, mm-hmm. we have, you know, world-class scenery there, and, I mean, it's, it's, it's still spectacular, so. Yeah. Yeah, and twenty five hundred dollars rather than try to stretch it and go someplace really far, I would explore the stuff that he has mm-hmm. here. Unless he's seen yeah. every inch of California already, stay mm-hmm. stay home and look around. I mean, if you if you drive to Vegas, not only can you do the the deserts, you know, you get mm-hmm. a, a lot of that along the way. Yeah. Um, but then you've got the uh, big sign graveyard. What and is then that? You got some options there, and then of course you get the people. So you kind of maximize. So you're not just doing landscapes or just doing city and kind of. Yeah, don't do that. Although Vegas can be expensive too, yeah. <laughs> depending yeah. on where it goes. But <laughs> you could go do the be the tourist in Vegas. Go to Hoover Dam and Red Rock. And, yeah, you know, absolutely. Like that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Interesting, interesting. Twenty five hundred dollars. So uh, should be travel agents. So he doesn't need us to tell him what lens to rent. <laughs> no, <laughs> he decided to rent he's a got, lens. So I think he knows. Okay, what he's, got, he's, he's got that covered. Okay. Well, what would you rent, Valerie? <laughs> um. Oh, well, it depends know. on what he has already. Let's let's assume That's he has true. a fifty mil well, and you know, say a seventy two hundred. What what else did he get? Twenty four. I would get the twenty four to seventy. Yeah. If I just because I only I only travel with one lens, so really that would be my yeah. yeah. I only you just care, travel with well, one no, lens. I I never have an extra lens with me when I'm on a photo walk. When, you, when you're walking, when okay. in, but I could leave one in the hotel. But okay. I usually just bring one lens, and that would be my I go to lens. That. That is great advice. I love that. Yeah, I think you mentioned that during our interview as well. That is, uh, I, I, I don't lo- change. Le- I don't change lenses in cities because I don't want dust on my sensor. Remember. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I love that. Ron, do you do that? Do you when you're out like in in exotic jungles looking for you know the, <laughs> the lost ark? Do you uh, do you have one lens with you? No, I usually have uh, a couple. I, I I really like carrying an ultra wide, so I have my ten to twenty two, um, which I. It's interesting because on my last uh, my last little trip when I was in Egypt and uh, in Jordan, um, I had my my seventeen to eighty five died on me, uh, or more specifically, it would only go from about sixty to seventy five or sixty to eighty five. There was just a certain range where it would work, and the rest of it, it just wouldn't work at all. So I ended up kind of being a one lens person. I just put on the ultra wide, and it sort of forced me to just figure out what to do with that with that one lens and uh, it was an interesting experience love that love that dan when you're when you're traveling do you mm-hmm. do you travel much yeah. you get out of chicago i do a, a lot actually yeah yeah what do you yeah. what do you uh what do you bring well you, you know you know I'm, I'm a little more concerned about you know because we have the studio i've got um the d3 d7000 and my old d90 so mm-hmm. i'll actually take the 7000 out of studio leaving the yeah. d3 in you know for bread and butter stuff um, unless, you know, depending on, on the day, I'll bring it. But I've been trying to avoid that a little bit more. Um, you definitely want to get away from 
you know, the Nikon, you know, lens strap. <laughs> the, the steel um, and make it, yeah. 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 yeah, because you can use it, – it's really important, too, when you're traveling. Um, just use kind of like a no-name strap, mm-hmm. you know, like I have on, on this one because it's just – it's a red flag for people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's easy so, money. Hit that guy on the head and – Yeah, I mean, it's part of it. Or Although, two or three, right? I got to tell you, walking around Chicago, you, you got a big D3 – you know, this is the 85, which finally came in. Mm-hmm. This is a weapon. Yes. <laughs> I'm not kidding. You know, and I actually have a wrist strap here that, I, that I'll bring in. It wraps around, yeah. and it's kind of hard to get off. And you can, I mean, you can damage somebody with that. Yeah. But um, I actually just bought a Nikon S9300, a little, little point and shoot, uh, to always have with me all the time. Because there are times you just want to take a photo, but you're not on a paid assignment. You know, if I was fortunate enough like ron to go go to uh hong kong and things i absolutely bring the big cameras and you know and maybe maybe tape up the name a little bit and try and be more discreet about it um when i've gone to jamaica and places like that i actually have a it's a sling mm-hmm. and it opens from the top and i'm fixing what i'm doing here it opens from the top and i'll have that wrist strap and i can put it right in there pull it out take some shots and put it down and then it's under my arm hmm. because you're in a certain cities um, you don't want to be, hi, I'm a tourist with my camera walking around. So sure, sure. those those are just things to be conscious of, you know, when you're traveling with a camera. Yeah. Now, Ron, I've never had any close calls at all. You that, haven't? That's good. Like yeah. in terms of like being mugged or anything? Yeah. Um, I mean, I usually travel in Europe, like big cities like London, Paris, yeah. Amsterdam, and I, I've never even felt, you know, like threatened, you know, that huh. somebody was going to mug me. Yeah. But. But that's not to I haven't say that either, you but I grew be... up in Chicago, so I'm just it's in the back <laughs> of my head. That's not to say that you be shouldn't be cognizant yeah. of your surroundings, though. Yeah. Even even in those yeah. big cities that are, because there's uh there there are people everywhere that will take yeah. what you have. Yeah, right? yeah. If it, if it's a photographic journey, yeah, I'll bring I'll bring two lenses, twenty four to seventy for sure, and either the wide or the zoom, depending on what I'm going to do and if I can fit it in with. Uh, I got a nice think tank bag, so I can actually fit it all with the laptop. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's just a, a trip, little point and shoot. Yeah. No, Ron, yeah. you don't when you when you go on your adventures. And by the way, you look like you're sinking in quicksand over there. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think the shock absorbers on my chair just slowly start to sink down. That's awesome. You were a full person. Now you're just you're just a head over there. I don't know. It's a oompa loompa. Um, no, but there. when you go, I remember you telling me one of these trips that you went on maybe a year or two ago that you didn't bring your DSLR. On purpose, you just brought something really yeah, because you were worried about your safety, my, right? Uh, well, no, it was uh, it was my trip to Nicaragua, and it, it wasn't a safety thing. It was more of a uh, just seeing if I could get along with that. It, Nick, I've been to, I've been to Costa Rica a couple times, and the scenery is fairly similar between Costa Rica and Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. I kind of was like, all right, I, I don't expect that I'll see tons of things that will be extraordinarily unique and so i just thought i'd try it and it was it was you know it was interesting i mean i certainly missed it at times and there were certainly shots that i can kind of still remember as like boy i wish i'd had a beefier camera for that but you know these little point and shoots are pretty decent but yeah. it was it was not a safety concern though it was yeah. more of a uh i mean i i haven't really had a problem either i was reasonably paranoid in venezuela just because it's just got such a bad reputation and the only real incident i ever had didn't happen to me but it was the girl i was walking next to uh, in Egypt, and somebody came up, and ostensibly he was trying to sell some, uh, like a scarf. And the trick was he was holding the scarf up, sort of like directly under our noses, and 
what you don't realize is while he's doing it, his other hand is underneath the scarf, reaching into the bag that's at your side. Uh. It, it was, it was, it was really an interesting exercise in how clever they've gotten. You know, because he's totally talking. I mean, he, he must have practiced this quite a bit because he kept up the whole spiel. He was talking the whole time. He making eye contact, all that. Wa- yeah. you know, he was waving it, you know, in front of our faces. So Should have brought the D three. Boom. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and I mean, and he ended up not getting anything because she she felt you know some tug on the bag, so he wasn't that skilled, and you know, and, wow. and uh, she called him out and he ran away. But that was the only even slight incident I've ever had. Huh. Interesting. Well, yeah. Lesson is keep your eyes open. You got especially you're in you're in unfamiliar places and you have these really 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 expensive cameras <laughs> with yep. you. Um, yeah, you can make somebody's yeah. day easily. But well, and I, I think the other thing is that the, it's much, much, much more likely that what's going to happen is the bag is going to get grabbed if you set it down, if you take your eye off of it. Yeah. You know, the, the chance of somebody yanking a camera off of your neck or something are just so much lower than you just losing track of it, you know, mm-hmm. and, and or leaving your bag open or something like that. And that's that's really, a, you know, the thing you really got to watch out for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, yeah, and you also want to... I think somebody just yanking it off your neck and running is that would be preferable to, to them saying, "Hey, here's a gun in your face. Give me your right. camera and the bag and you know yep. everything else." You know, yeah. so yeah, just keep a, keep an eye out on that stuff. Um, all right, let's uh, let's move into the pick of the week segment. This is this is the pick of the week where you guys pick something photography related. It can be anything. It can be a rock. You know, as long as it is somehow even tangentially related to photography. I'm going to start with you, Dan, first, yep. and uh, you, you know, let, let us know what your pick of the week is. Yeah, my my pick of the week is StickyAlbums.com. Sticky and, albums. Uh, sticky albums, and it, it's pretty neat. It's you can do it for twenty dollars a month. You can actually try one for free, or you can do one for I think it's uh, unlimited for one hundred and eighty for the whole year. Mm-hmm. And basically, what it does it allows you to log in and brand an album. Uh, so let's say we do we just photographed a high school senior. They all want it on their iPhones and their iPads and Blackberries and whatever else. It will actually create an application, a gallery that you it's, – it's an HTML5 thing, but it actually works really well. Um, you upload all your photos. You've got all your branding already set in there. And it has a horizontal and vertical position of your logo that you, you put in Photoshop. You just make it that way and uh, – Send up, you know, upload your images. It'll send them a link, and then when you hit, when they hit that link in their email, it'll actually load on their phone or their iPad and tell them, okay, go ahead and click this button, and it'll make a desktop application. Hmm. So, long story short, they the seniors can go and say, okay, here's my phone, here's my my sticky album, um, and they can take a look at all their photos and show everybody. So rather than, and even for the moms especially, so I don't know if you could see that, but <laughs> there's one on there, and what it'll do. Um, calls up your your logo just like that which you there we go my reflection yep and then in a matter of minutes there's your album well and you know rather than trying to load all their photos onto their phone um or the mother for that matter which you know you know there's some technically challenged adults (laughs) Mm -hmm. and they can they can just press click a link and they've got all of their kids photos on their phone or their ipad so really nice sticky albums very cool all right and i'm looking at their site now they've got a free trial yeah, um, and a start. They, their starter package is twenty one bucks a month, or the pro package is one hundred eighty nine bucks a month. Yeah. No, a year. Oh, I'm sorry, a year. One hundred eighty nine a year. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. Unlimited. Yeah. Um, okay. Cool. All right, Dan. Thanks for that. Sure. All right, Mr. Ron Brinkman. What is your pick of the week? 
Uh, well, as we teased a little bit in the beginning, I've been head down working on this little iPhone app, uh, kind of to teach myself about the process, but also because I think it's a fun sort of thing. And the app is called Freeze Paint. And it's, it's going to be a little difficult to describe, but basically it's sort of an on-the-fly compositing uh, application where instead of, but instead of you know, like Photoshop where you've got to take a bunch of photos and then layer them together and create masks and all that sort of thing, it's, uh, you just point your camera at some subject and you kind of finger paint onto the screen and it will freeze that area of the thing. It'll take a little snapshot, but it also includes a mask for wherever you've painted and what it does is it lets you really quickly kind of put together you know, collages and that sort of thing. It's very easy, but it also is effectively a compositing tool and a layering tool in the sense that you can point at one subject, kind of paint a little bit to generate a mask, and then point at another subject and layer that behind it and kind of build up these these complex or interesting or fun sort of uh, images out of it. I, I think it's really sort of a, it's a new way of looking at photography. I'm really hoping that people kind of, use it in that fashion that they just it sort of changes the way they think about how they're interacting with their camera and gives them just a different kind of paradigm where they're not stuck in this I'm going to take you know press the shutter and get a single image in time it's much more about kind of remixing your world around you yeah and um, I don't know it's it, it just just came out uh, I guess it was a couple of days ago it was officially released nice. and so we're still kind of trying to see what's the you know what are people going to be using it for? What's the what's the traction point on it? But I mean, I would love to have <laughs> oh people you not do. just do that. <laughs> I knew it. Wow. Uh oh, we just lost Ron. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> See, that's what he gets. It's his turn this time. <laughs> that's what he gets. Right on freeze paint. All right. Well, maybe he'll join back in while we're waiting on Ron to to rejoin us. Um. Oh, there he is. He's back. Uh oh. Let's see. That'll I teach me. See. Yeah, I did not. I did not boot you out, Ron. That was. Uh... <laughs> That'll teach me. That was good. Yeah. For those that are listening in, I, uh, I while while Frederick was talking a little bit earlier, I used the app to kind of uh, remix his face at an extra eyeball on the top of his forehead, kind yeah. of thing. Just yeah. just taking screenshots from him, but. Um, yeah, so it, it's kind of fun. The the in some ways it's almost. Uh, I mean, it's very open-ended. You can kind of do anything with it that you can come up with. So I'm hoping that people will do exactly that. But uh, it's in the App Store now. It's just called Freeze Paint. You can go to uh, freezepaintapp.com and check it out. And uh, it's very, uh, I don't know, I think it's very fun. But I, I, w I would love for people to try it. And I would really, obviously, when you're jump-starting an app like this, the, the word of mouth is what you live or die by. So if anybody uh, does check it out, please share the images on Facebook and Twitter. There's a really easy way for doing that. And and just help me spread the word. And, and what I'm hoping is that, you know, we'll get a lot of fun images out of it. Yeah, that's cool. Oh, cool. What's the price point? Or how much does it cost? 99 cents. 99 one, one thin cents. dollar. Look at that. Cool. Less less than what you tip the coffee guy. That's so, right. <laughs> and, and, and full money back guarantee from me personally. I'll, I'll send you a crisp $1 bill if you don't like it. Oh, wow. You can make a penny on it right there. Wow! Look at that. All right, that's cool. All right, Ron. Thanks a lot. And Valerie, do you uh, do you have a pick of the week for us? Yes, and it's a book, Storytellers by Gerald Foster. Did you read that one? Um, I have yeah. that. I have not read it yet, though. It's really good. And um, how come I don't show on the big screen when I'm talking? Uh, I can showing. see you. We see you. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Um, which is fine. I'd rather be on the tiny screen. <laughs> uh, so, Storytellers by Gerald. 
Jared Foster. And it's um, it's like no matter what level in photography you are, you'll find something in there. It's um, it's about telling a story in a frame or in a series of images, and um, which is what I love to do and I love yep. to teach. And I like I like his approach. I mean, even non-photographers would enjoy this book. The, the, the images are beautiful. I like his style. It's, uh, it's a great book. A Photographer's Guide to Developing Themes and Creating Stories with Pictures. Very cool. All right. Jared Thanks Foster. for that. And it's published with New Writers. New Writers. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. It's my publisher. All right. All right. And my pick of the week, really quick, is along the lines of what we were talking about before with pre-visualization. And I, in my camera bag, I have these little, my camera bag's over there, so I can't get it, but these little notebooks about this size are blank pages um, and a little pen like this that I, uh, if I have an idea of a shot that I want to do or a location that I drive by that might make a good, like, model shoot or landscape or something, then I'll just make a note in that. And a lot of people might be saying, well, you have an iPhone with you. Why don't you just take a picture of it or write a note in the iPhone? And for some reason, I don't know, maybe it's the way my brain is wired, but the act of actually writing down or drawing a little tiny sketch or something to trigger my memory works better than doing it digitally in an app on the iPhone. And I can get to it quickly because I, I also have one in the car. So one right on my dashboard, I could just grab it and make a quick note, throw it back down, and I don't have to fumble with you know the phone and break the law and all that stuff. So, um, and they're cheap. You, know, you, can get, you can get these notebooks anywhere um, for a couple, you know, a buck, or you can get a bunch for a buck. And uh, they, they've saved my life a couple of times in terms of remembering things or, or even just ideas that I have for the show or different projects that I want to work on. It's just, you know, jotting things down. So it goes beyond photography. So I would definitely put that in there as my tip of the week. All right. Um, we are at the end of, the, of another episode of This Week in Photo, guys. Valerie, I want to throw it to you first. Where can people go to find out more about you and see some of your work and your workshops and all that magic? Um, well, my website, and then there are links to everything. Um, so it's valeriejardinphotography.com, which is V-A-L-E-R-I-E-J-A-R-D-I-N, photography, all in one word. Yeah. Or Valerie Jardin, as you would say, but... It's yep. Valérie Jardin Photography. Got it. Perfect. And Thank you're on you. Twitter and Google Plus as well, right? Twitter, uh, Facebook. Um, yes, Google Plus, although I spend more time on Facebook. I have a page. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have two blogs. And uh, and my workshop is filling up quickly. I only have three or four spots left. Maybe running a second one back-to-back in Paris. So. Oh, really? Ooh. Yes. When is that coming up? When's the workshop? October 7. October 7. So that one is on, uh, I, I have about... We have four or five spots. No, three or four spots left. Mm-hmm. And if, if, if it fills up by the end of the month, I'm actually thinking of adding a, a second one, either the week before or the week after, because okay. it's so popular. Very cool. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. So there's room for you, Frederick. Uh, see, look at that. <laughs> Frederick in Paris. Wow. Uh, I don't know if they'd let me in. In black and white, bring that Leica. There you go. Hey, you know, if Leica sponsors my trip there, I will bring that camera and only okay. that camera. How about that? Okay. Sounds good. All right. Uh, Dan, where can people go to find yes, out more about you? Uh, our main photography site is Ablin Gallery, A-B-L-A-N, ablingallery.com. Uh, and to make it easy, about.me slash Dan Ablin. Look at that. You find yeah. all the other Got stuff. Got everything there, huh? Yep. yep. Very cool. All right. 
and Mr. Ron Brinkman, the CEO of Freeze Paint. Where can people go to uh, to check you out? You can go to uh, Facebook.com slash Freeze Paint, Twitter.com slash Freeze Paint, uh, FreezePaintApp.com. <laughs> <laughs> you can WhiteHouse.gov slash Freeze Paint. <laughs> yes. Go to Facebook. That's probably the most uh, efficient way for people to see new stuff and uh, uh, stay on top of it. And I'll be chatting on there. Very cool. All right. Well, thanks, guys. All right. Uh, and listeners, if you want to keep up with everything in the TWIP universe, you can just check us out at thisweekinphoto.com. Also, please support the show by leaving us a comment on iTunes. That's where you can subscribe to us as well. And speaking of iTunes, be sure to check out our podcast app. It's a handy way to keep up with the shows as soon as they are released. And you also help support the show. And if you're looking for me, Frederick Van Johnson, you can find me and the various things I'm working on at my site, frederickvan.com. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. This Week in Photo is a Pixelcore.tv production, produced by Suzanne Llewellyn, with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar. 